I don't know about you, but my heart is full this morning. That just really ministered to me. Thankful to be here with all of you and thankful to other uh, leaders could get away and be renewed and it's a good time for them, I hope. This morning we're uh, venturing into James chapter 2, so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to take it out and open up to that place. How many of you loved high school? Yeah. How many of you barely survived high school? Yeah. High school has left many people emotionally scarred. Um, And I was thinking back to physical education. One of my favorite classes, right? P.E. And the days you had to go in and, and play volleyball. You remember that? And two people out of the class would be picked. And those two people did what? They picked teams, right? They're the captains. They get to pick the teams. And do they pick people based on their skill at volleyball? What do they pick them based on? Whether or not they're friends, whether or not they're popular. It's one of the most trying things I think I ever had to deal with. Because I was actually pretty good at volleyball. But I wasn't part of the in crowd, you know. And so I didn't get picked first. And I was insulted uh, by that. But that's how it is. You know, that's high school. It's, it's uh, playing favorites. It's choosing sides. It's, it's uh, preferring one person over another based on their externals, how they look. Um, not on whether or not they're skilled at volleyball. Well, why don't you turn to James uh, chapter 2. James is going to teach us about the uh, sin of playing favorites within the church this morning. And uh, it's a message that is heavy on my heart. Uh, I think playing favorites is at epidemic proportions in the church. I think uh, churches, by and large, cater to the beautiful people. You all are very beautiful this morning, I should tell you. Um, But how are we at being accepting towards those who are different? Uh, Those who are not as attractive, those who are maybe coming in shabby clothes because that's all they can afford. Um, How are we with that type of person walking into our fellowship? Uh, James is going to challenge us on that this morning. And and in fact, uh, as we've unfolded the book of James, going back to 119, we said that uh, this sort of set the course for the rest of the book, remember? And he said, uh, Beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Well, we are now in chapter 2 in this section of being quick to hear and do the Word of God. And part of doing the Word of God is to not play favorites, according to James. To not show favoritism, to not be partial uh, because it, it is divisive to the body of Christ. And so this, uh, this text before us this morning, let's go ahead and, and have a look-see at it. And 
and see what James has for us this morning. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Let's pray. Uh, Father, this seems like uh, such a heavy text. It, its implications are weighty and, and it's heavy on my heart. And, and Lord, I pray that as a church body, uh, we would not be found guilty of this. That we would not show partiality to people based on their external appearances. Father, this is a a difficult thing because it lies at the heart level. Um, It's not the clothes. It's it's our own hearts uh, that are on trial here this morning. And I pray your word would convict us, that if there be sin, that we would confess it and repent of it, and that as a body, we would be characterized and known by our love for others. Lord, may you please speak to us through your word this morning. May your spirit bring about change and sanctification in the areas where we need to change. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So uh, over in Ephesians 4, it tells us that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the body of Christ, right? And so my end this morning is that we would be diligent to preserve the unity of the body of Christ, which he purchased with his very blood. And so uh, we're going to see three reasons uh, why we must not play favorites in the church. Okay, and I've entitled this faith does not play favorites. Um, And so if you are a believer in Christ. Uh, What that does is it levels the playing field. Everybody comes to Christ on the same terms. The rich are lowered. The poor are raised up. Everybody in the kingdom is equal. And that's what James' point here is going to be. Um, More than anything else, it's a sin to play favorites with people based on their external appearances. And so uh, the first reason we must not play favorites is there in verse 1. You'll see it. Uh, it's playing favorites assaults the glory of Christ. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And so James is basically saying faith doesn't play favorites. You cannot do that. If you name the name of Christ, you can't prefer one person over another based on externals. And it seems clear that he's talking to believers, right? Because he calls them what? 
my brethren. So he's prohibiting them from doing something based on the language that is apparently going on in the early church. Remember, we said James is an early epistle, and so this was happening in the early church. And uh, some of the language in the text uh, sort of betrays that this is, this is not a hypothetical scenario. This is an actual thing that has happened. And he's not pointing to a specific instance, but he's saying, listen, this is being done and this can't continue. So he says, do not hold your faith. Literally, do not be having the faith. Do not be having the faith. It's, it's talking about the inner quality of your faith. And, and it's like, uh, don't hold your faith. Do not be having the faith in favoritism. And notice it's the faith. It's not your faith. It's the faith. There is one faith. And James is calling us to that one faith, and he's saying, do not, have the, do not be having the faith in favoritism. Now, personal favoritism, this is the only use of this word in the New Testament, and it's a compound word. Um, and I'll try to say it in Greek, but good luck. Uh, it's prosopolemsiais, Right? And that came over from the Hebrew phase, which is a lot easier to say, which is uh, panim nasa. And what that literally means is to lift, lift up the face of a person. It's, it's to be a respecter of persons, to look at their face and sort of assess them based on what they look like. Leviticus 19.15 kind of gives us the background on that word. Uh, and it says uh, there in Leviticus 19:15, which is part of the Old Testament law, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So it was built into the law that people were to judge with equity. Uh, they were to judge fairly toward those who were um, of, of poorer circumstances and those who were rich were not to be favored over the others. The law commanded respect for the entire people of God, particularly toward the needy and the defenseless. It runs all through Leviticus 19. So in other words, do not show favor to one person or another based on externals. One commentator defines partiality as this. He says, it's a bias of judgment owing to position, rank, circumstances, popularity, and externals generally of the person judged. In our modern day vernacular, we might say it's, uh, we might call it being judgy, right? How many of you have been called judgy? Someone taking another at surface value as though it were indicative of what's on the inside. And saying, um, I see the outside and I'm going to judge you based on what I see. Without knowing anything about them. And James says this is a huge no-no. Huge no-no. 
We are not to be having the faith or holding it in a judgmental way. We're not to play favorites where the gospel and other people are concerned. And why not? Well, this verse ends with an unusual phrase. The faith is in something. Do you see that in the text there? Verse 1. It's the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. That's literally how it reads. You have probably alternate translations. Many people have struggled with how to interpret this last phrase. But I think the evidence points to the way I just translated it. There have been several suggestions. Some have said it's the, glory, the Lord of glory. Others have said it's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Others are our Lord from glory. And then I see it as what's known as a, a genitive of apposition linguistically, which means it, it renames the thing before it, right? And so it's Jesus who is glor- the glory. It's Jesus who is the glory. It's another name for Jesus Christ. It renames who He is. He is the glory. And what James is basically calling Jesus here is he's equating Him to the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And this is not unprecedented. You can look at Romans 9.4, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.6, Ephesians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3. The name Shekinah was not only used by the Jews of God, but it was used of the Messiah in, in the Old Testament. It's also analogical to places where Jesus is called, what, the way, the truth, the life, the word. Why not the glory? It appears in the text that James is is drawing a comparison here between Christ's eternal divine glory and the passing glory of this world's wealth. And that seems to be the contrast here. All this to say one thing, uh, to show partiality, to judge based on externals, or to play favorites is to assault the very nature of Christ. He is the Shekinah glory. And as Dr. Thomas said uh, over at the Master's Seminary, he said, one who has faith in such a Lord should not be guilty of acts of partiality. Sinclair Ferguson, a popular writer, said, If Christ is not ashamed to indwell the poor, I will not be slow to embrace them. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. This is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And the Apostle Paul here says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and these are all to be taken, by the way, as, and there is, right? If there is any affection and compassion, and there is, then he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, 
maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, and here it is, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says in verse 5, have this attitude, which is literally the word mind. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, why do I go to this passage? Because the reality is normally the Apostle Paul will give you doctrine, right? And then he'll make application of the doctrine. We see that clearly like in books like Ephesians, right? First three chapters, all doctrine. Last three chapters, all duty, right? But here the Apostle Paul does he takes a different tactic. He gives us the application first, and then he illustrates it with doctrine. Right? So he tells us and the church to do what? To defer to one another, to prefer other people over ourselves. And his illustration of it is with the greatest example of self-humiliation he could possibly think of, Christ. Christ humbled himself in mind, and then he assumed the posture of a servant. He allowed himself to become man, and and then to self-abase to the point of a common criminal. Right? And because of that, God exalted him. And this is our example in the church, that Christ who had... He had had everything, gave it all away. Technically speaking, he kept it, but he, he laid aside his prerogatives to use it, right? And he humbled himself in mind first, and then he took action. That's what the text is telling us. So, it is in the gospel, in the kingdom. The wealthy are to do what? Lower themselves. Self-abase. The poor, what? They get the privilege of becoming heirs to the kingdom. Nothing is what it seems, is it? The poor are elevated. The rich are brought low. Everybody... The first becomes last. The last becomes first. Everybody gets the same thing. And that's the gospel. Playing favorites assaults that glory of Christ. He is the Shekinah glory. He is the glory of God who existed in the form of God and He gave it up and humbled Himself to become poor. So to... To treat the poor shabbily based on their clothes is to insult the very gospel of Christ. The very nature of Christ. 
He gave it all up for us. That is the gospel. So playing favorites assaults the glory of Christ. Secondly, playing favorites asserts evil motives. Verses 2 to 4. James uses a hypothetical situation here, like I said, to get to the heart motives behind the favoritism that is being shown in the church. And it's hypothetical to one point, but as I said, it's based on fact, right? The names have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> the use of the word for here at the beginning is, is, means it's a gar clause, what they call in Greek. And what that shows us is that verses 2 through 4 are explanatory. They explain the first verse, meaning that favoritism is easily recognizable as sin. And there's two truths about favoritism you need to be aware of based on this, this little vignette here, this little picture. And the first one is that favoritism is biased to externals. You see that where he says that the man comes into your assembly and, and what do you notice about him, first of all? Right? He's got a big gold ring on. You take notice of that gold ring and he's dressed in really fine clothes. And, and the text says, at the same time, a man dressed shabbily comes in. And so the church is faced with a dilemma. Right? We have, to, we have to care for both of these people. We have to welcome both of these people. Which one are we going to run to? And shame on the church. Who do they run to? They run to the rich guy. Because he looks better. So they tell him, you sit here in the best seat of the house, right? And they tell the poor man, you stand over there in the corner, or you can come sit down next to my footstool. Or, uh, more to the point, uh, upon my footstool, uh, the, the idea here is that I can rest my feet on your neck like a conquered Victim. The picture taken from the Old Testament is it's supposed to show complete humiliation. The word for assembly is actually synagogue. Uh, uh, this is an early letter, and so the church was still associated with Judaism at this time, and, and the church was meeting in synagogue. But this scenario, the verbs are all subjunctives, which means it's, it's hypothetical, but not completely. Like I said, he's focusing on the response of the people in the synagogue, not, the, not what the people are dressed like. These, this picture here is supposed, to, is supposed to resonate with the people in the church. They look at these two men, and they draw immediate judgments, conclusions based on their clothes. Second, uh, favoritism is blind to internals. So it's biased to externals and it's blind to internals. And he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? 
Uh, it literally reads, did you not judge in yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, the, re- the basis for the response is twofold. They, they look at the outside and they neglect to take a look at the inside. The real problem here is, is not the people entering the synagogue. The problem is the heart motives of the people who were professing believers. And consequently, how they were treating their guests. People who came to hear the gospel. Or people who had believed in Christ and were coming to fellowship. See, the believers acted in accordance with worldly values rather than uniting around the principles of Christ. A true understanding of the gospel would have flipped this scenario completely. Right? Christ is most glorified in the humbling or the lowering of the wealthy and the raising up of the poor. It should have been the poor man who was given the best seat in the house. It should have been the rich man who voluntarily sat on the floor or stood in the corner. And and the thing about this is that the whole church is condemned here because they condoned this divisive act. See, the gospel upends social relationships within the church. You should be more concerned about the redemption of the lost than judging how they appear on the outside. You should be more concerned about the redemption of a soul than the recognition of a status. But that is not our bent. And I'm not pointing at anybody in particular here, and I'm not breaking out the ruler to slap across your knuckles here. But this is an exhortation for all of us because we're looking at our hearts. Right? And the heart is desperately wicked. And we are judgy people. I'm a judgy person. We all are. We just need to admit it so we can deal with it. Don't think this was just a problem in the early church. I mean, if you... If, if you let this resonate with you for just a little while, you'll find that this scenario is true. Imagine a homeless person who smelled and they're dressed all shabbily and they're you know, wearing a tinfoil hat or something walking in the back door. And imagine a nice middle class or upper class family from, from Meridian or Eagle walking in here. And, and which one would you run to? Which one would you show favor to? I mean, this is a challenge for all of us. Greed and desire for self-gain, whatever your motivation, the fear of man, the love for the world, they're, they're all very alive today. Alive and well. And one writer said favoritism is the sin by which the world or the church slides into worldliness and error. Favoritism is the sin by which the church slides into worldliness and error. We're not just talking about new people in the church either, right? What about 
those who are already in the church. We can easily play favorites within our own body, right? Maybe someone appears too old. Too old to fit into my group. Or, or too overweight. Or too skinny. Or not pretty. Or too pretty. Or maybe they're handicapped in some way. Or, or maybe they're just socially awkward. But I don't want them in my group. So how do you respond? Do you, do you invite them in? Do you welcome them? Are you careful not to judge a book by its cover? Give people a chance? See, things aren't always as they appear in relation to God's kingdom. You haven't heard everybody's story. You don't know what's going on in their lives. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Beloved, that's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. Christ self-abased so that we could benefit from it. He became poor so that through His poverty, you and I might become rich. Heirs to the kingdom. So playing favorites assaults the glory of Christ. Playing favorites asserts evil motives. Third, playing favorites assumes incorrect conclusions. Let's face it, if you're a judgmental person, if you embraced worldly standards, then you're going to draw false conclusions about people. Right? And so James says, listen. Listen emphatically. He says, um, there, there's three questions in the text, if you look at it with me. Verses 5, 6, and 7, each, each verse has a question in it, and they're all rhetorical questions. And they're designed to pierce to the heart. See, we, we draw wrong conclusions because of the outward appearance of things. But look at the first question in verse 5. Listen, my beloved. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Answer? It's yes, right? Absolutely, he did. And one writer said such a statement should supersede all lesser considerations. <laughs> Who did God choose to be truly wealthy in this world? The poor. God has chosen the poor to be trophies of His grace and salvation. Now, that doesn't mean every poor person will be saved. It means the poor as a class will go from being the lowest to the highest 
And so they'll receive the greatest gain from the Gospel. And so their coming to faith should be celebrated by everybody. That's his point. See, it's, it's by God's design that the poor be elevated to a lofty position and made heirs of the kingdom. The verb here, choose, is the verb for God's election. Eklegomai. God chose to create a people for Himself out of the least significant among the nations. God chooses. He chose. He elected the poor in order to raise them up. Put them on display as trophies of His grace. They were chosen to be wealthy in faith. Not rich according to worldly standards. And I say that because what do we, what do we see nowadays? Right? If you believe in Jesus, you can have it all, right? Your best life now. You can be wealthy. And the, the health and wealth false teachers, they tend to rob the poor by promising them wealth in this life. They, they warp, they manipulate the Gospel to make them think that if they just give, that God will repay them in wealth. They couldn't be more wrong. It's not worldly wealth that we're talking about. It's the wealth of the Gospel. The wealth of faith in Christ. The riches of His grace. Second question. Who are the ones that persecute the church? Is it the poor people? Or is it the wealthy? See, James says, you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? As a class, it's the rich who suspend justice and fairness by fraud and oppression of the poor in order to increase their wealth. How do the wealthy get wealthier? They rob the poor. Their pile becomes bigger and everybody else's becomes smaller. And they tend to prey on the less fortunate. And in the early church, they defrauded and exploited others, yet the church was celebrating their arrival into the assembly rather than celebrating those that were the recipients of the greatest measure of God's grace. Those who had gone from abject poverty, I'm sorry, had a hard time saying that, abject poverty to entrance into the kingdom as heirs and, and children into the family of God. See, the rich were dragging the poor into the courts like common criminals, and the church was doing nothing to defend them. They were complicit in it. And the church was playing favorites with the rich. And unfortunately, many still today, to this day, I mean, we should read the book of Job and really seriously think about it. But many still see a connection between worldly wealth and the blessings of God. Right? If you're really blessed of God, 
You'll have the big house. You'll have the cars. You'll have the big bank accounts. God is blessing you, right? That's not the gospel. You know that, right? If anything, God is going to humble your circumstances to separate you from worldly wealth so you'll become more dependent on Him. That would be the grace of God in your life. That would be something to celebrate. Jesus said it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right? Than it is for a camel to do what? How many camels have you seen go through the eye of a needle? Third question, who are the ones who blaspheme the name of Christ? Is it the poor or is it the wealthy? He says, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? And this goes beyond mere exhortation now. This is downright confrontational. James is calling the rich out as a class, and he's calling them blasphemers of Christ because of how they have treated the poor as a class. It's literally the word blasphemos in Greek, and it's just a transliteration. They've blasphemed. They've drugged through the mud the name of Christ. They sin against the poor. They play favorites. They've, they've honored the rich, and in so doing, they've dishonored Christ. By the way, this is not a call to socialism. I am not a socialist, okay? Just so we're clear on that. But it is a call to equality in the gospel and in the body of Christ. In Christ, we are all one, right? There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no a male. There is no female as far as equality in the gospel goes. Yes, we all have different roles, but... But as far as what we all are and who we are in Christ, we are all the same and we are all one. Right? So the church should not shame those who are struggling financially. Nor should it celebrate the wealthy as though they're better or more blessed. See, the gospel is the hope of the poor And it calls rich people, rich believers, to repentant self-abasement. Can you imagine what this was like in the early church? I mean, social class, like today, was a huge thing. Somebody would be sitting in a pew next to a poor person. Or they would have Jews sitting next to Gentiles. Right? Men and women sitting next to each other, all together equal. That's what the church was. And those who had money, uh, we see in the book of Acts, or they had a lot of land, like Barnabas, they were selling it off and giving it to the apostles to distribute, the text says, to, to any as had need. They were given stuff away because they expected Christ to return at any time. And they, they just didn't want the worldly wealth because they saw the kingdom coming on the other side. Right? 
And so they were thinking with eternal mindsets. They were not thinking about the here and now. So playing favorites assaults the glory of Christ. Playing favorites asserts evil motives. Playing favorites assumes incorrect conclusions. So playing favorites within the body of Christ is a sin because it leads to division. And the church is supposed to be one. And we are supposed to protect the unity of the church, not divide it. And putting away favoritism may seem like a simple concept for the church to embrace, but in actuality, it's very difficult to put into practice. Very difficult. And, and the difficulty does not lie in the poor receiving the grace. The difficulty lies in the rich self-abasing. See, we're not supposed to be partial, but God is. Right? Who did God choose to be heirs of the kingdom and rich in faith? See, He's allowed to choose. <laughs> but we're not. Because we're the recipients of the grace. It reminds me of a story. This whole difficulty of self-abasement. Mark 10, 17-27. I'll end with this. As he, that is Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, okay, stop right there for a minute. Jesus could have just let that slide, but it says he actually felt love for him, so he spoke the truth to him to wake him up from his, from his wealth, right? To snap him loose from his false security. So verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And there we get the story. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said with people, it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, the, the concept isn't hard, but our hearts are. Let's pray.